Okay. Well, last week we finished up our study in the book of Daniel. We had been going through and uh, we started out in Sunday school and we looked at the the uh, more historical section of it and we saw how uh, Daniel is an example of living a godly life in an ungodly land and we can relate to that because uh, the land which we live in, not just in Ireland, but the world that we live in is growing more and more ungodly and growing further and further away from him and any kind of uh, morality or godly principles. And then, uh, so he showed us an example of that, that it is possible to live righteous and that God will watch over and protect and, and take care of you even whenever it seems that uh, the world's turning upside down. And from there, we uh, moved into uh, studying the prophetic section on Wednesday nights and through that, what I hope to get across, I don't know if I was successful, but what I hope to get across was the fact that God is ultimately in control, that he can take care of his people regardless of what's going on in the world around them, and that he has a plan, he's working it out, and what he desires to happen, what he has pre-planned before the foundations of the world, is going to happen. All of the wickedness that seems to be out of control right now God is working it together for his purposes. He will eventually judge it righteously. He will eventually put uh, all the wickedness down. He will cleanse this earth, cleanse this world. He will rule in righteousness. He'll vanquish sin. He will correct all of the wrongs that's in this world. And so we can grieve over the injustices. We can grieve over the deaths and the sicknesses and the wars and the famines and the earthquakes and all those things, the corruption within government and uh, all of these different things that's happening, but we know that God will ultimately deal with all of those things and that there is an eternity that lays ahead of us uh, where we can dwell with him in the absence of sin and all of its consequences. And we can enjoy a perfect eternity. And so that makes all the problems of this life uh, seem a little bit smaller, I think, if we can get the right perspective. Know that God's powerful He's in control, he has a plan, and he's going to make it happen. And so this week we're going to uh, start something new, and before I get into what we're going to do, we're going to be starting in the Old Testament, we're going to be going through the Old Testament a little bit here, and we're going to be looking at salvation, okay, in the Old Testament. And so my first question, before I go too far I don't want to show my hand, okay, is in the Bible, how many different ways can we find to be saved in the Bible? Okay, Anna's voting for one. Oh. Anybody else want to take a stab at it? I can describe from Old Testament to New Testament, what may I say? Okay. And so, any other? Okay. Take it a poll. <laughs> okay. So, with your answer of two, what are you seeing? What What's different in the Old Testament from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Based on salvation, I think it's, it's possible that 
the time. Um, in the Old Testament, the time was was within the law. Okay. Where, where, whereby, if you sin, they have to be sacrifices for animal mm -hmm. in order your sins to be to be forgiven. Okay. So you're saying uh, it's more of a matter of uh, whenever we say time, the permanency of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So New Testament, you're saying salvation is permanent. Old Testament was something that had to be reoccurring. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, and then the New Testament is like you don't need to pay anything, even if you don't have, you still get your salvation, which is permanent. So you you don't need to trouble yourself. Mm -hmm. I need to buy this in order to cleanse what what I've done in the past. So in the Old Testament, it was the the sacrifices that cleansed from sin. Is mm -hmm. what is what you're okay. And what happened before the law? Because the law didn't come until Moses. And there were several thousand years of people that existed between Adam and Moses. So is that a third way? <laughs> I, I'm not saying this to embarrass. I don't want you, I, I want people to think. That's what I'm trying to do is get people to think. Okay, so don't, please don't get embarrassed by me asking these things. I want people to... I'm wanting to provoke conversation. I know, okay. My thought is, even though they've done the sacrifices, they've done those sacrifices in faith. Okay. And they looked for the coming of Christ in faith. And then, like we're talking in the New Testament, they looked back in faith. Okay. Always you have to believe, okay? Without any law or something, okay? You have to believe. Abraham has to believe. You know what I mean? It's not that you have to obey all these rules or something. Right. Mm -hmm. You just need to believe and was acting. It's fair enough. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Well, we're going to be exploring this over the next several weeks. Okay. And we're going to be looking at this and we're going to be uh, seeing salvation from the Old Testament. And I've kind of titled this uh, Jesus BC. Okay. Or salvation BC, whichever one you want to say. And so salvation before Christ. And so we're going to be looking and seeing because a lot of people do have the idea that in the Old Testament, that salvation was by works. And so they get hung up on the law, and they say, okay, you had to keep the Ten Commandments. And if you didn't keep the Ten Commandments, then you had to offer a sacrifice to pay for the commandment that you broke. And so it was constantly this back and forth of, I'm trying to be good enough. Well, I wasn't good enough, so I've got to do this in order to make up for this. And it's the way that a lot of people see it. In many senses, religion, much of religion, still sees it in that perspective. Um, you look at many of today's uh, religious systems, I will say Catholicism, just because it's the one that 
is the most familiar for us. Mm -hmm. It is, okay, be a good person. If you're not a good person, then you need to go and confess, do penance, right? Keep the sacraments and all of these things. And so they see salvation in the New Testament the way that a lot of people see it in the Old Testament under the law. And so they have the priesthood, they have the works, they have the law, and it comes back to a very oppressive and burdensome system of trying to measure up and trying to make up when you don't measure up. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, if that is what we have in the Old Testament or the New Testament, neither one of them would be salvation, would it? Because you would ultimately be saving yourself. And we know that no one is saved by the deeds of the law. The Bible says that in the New Testament, right? Right. And so what we're going to be finding is that all the way through the Old Testament, we can find Jesus. We can find types and figures and shadows, if you will, of Jesus throughout the Old Testament that is showing us that salvation uh, by grace through faith because of Jesus' works on the cross was not an afterthought. It wasn't something that comes along later on, but rather it was God's plan from the beginning and it was the way that God has always dealt with man. Mm -hmm. And so to answer my question here, uh, many people are going to think that there were multiple ways of being saved depending on which time. Uh, You've got a common uh, teaching today, covenant theology. Anyone ever heard of it? God had many covenants with man throughout the Bible. So I don't have a problem with that. There are covenants within theology, but what people who adhere to covenant theology believe is that people were saved differently under each covenant. Okay? And so with that, you've got uh, a covenant with Abraham. And as long as Abraham was fulfilling that covenant, then he would have been saved, right? And then your covenant under the law, and then you got you know all these different covenants depending on what group that you follow, they'll break it down differently and say, okay, you have to stick to the terms of the covenant in order to receive salvation. And so with that, they find several different means of salvation. Instead, what I believe as I look through Scripture and as I study it is what's called dispensationalism. Okay? That's a long word that people get hung up on, but essentially what it means is that God was slowly unveiling his one plan from the beginning of Scripture until now, okay? And so we see a step-by-step process that is unveiled throughout Scripture, and in each of these different dispensations, God is holding man accountable at a different level, okay? And so we see in the beginning, man is in a state of innocence. They have no sin against them. They've done nothing wrong. And then after after they have eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they then are under a state of conscience, and they must follow their conscience. And you and I know that even trying to do that which is right according to our conscience, we still sin against our own conscience, right? And then from there you have... uh, uh, human governance, because with Noah, whenever he got off of the boat, God gave the power of the law of keeping human rule and things. He gave that to Noah. Any man who sheds blood by man's hands shall his blood be shed, right? 
So human governance, and then you have covenants, and then you have the law, and then you have grace and several different things. But what you see, excuse me, what you see is an unfolding of God's plan. And he is revealing slowly that no matter what the standard is, no matter what things that God puts in place, whether he gives them a conscience, he gives them human governments, he gives them covenants, he gives them laws, he gives them whatever man is, whatever God is giving man for man to be able to live righteously in every state, man comes up being sinful. And so what we see as God is unfolding this, we're finding that no matter what, man is unable to save himself. He's unable to live up to any standard of righteousness. And so it always comes back to under any dispensation at any time, any place in Scripture, you find us always going back to man must be saved by God's grace. It has to be freely given and unmerited. And so as we look through this and see Jesus in the Old Testament, we're going to begin, of course, at the beginning. And so with that, I've got another question for you. This isn't a trick question. Where is the first place in the Bible that Jesus is mentioned? Where is the first place in the Bible that Jesus is mentioned? Earliest reference to Jesus. Where at? Okay. Still earlier. Okay, you you mean Jesus being mentioned by name? Because not by name, the earliest mention of Jesus in Scripture. No, and I just said earliest in the Bible, wherever that's at, even if it, whether it's the New Testament, Old Testament. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, I believe. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, let us, the Godhead, right? Us, that's plural, isn't it? So that means that God was not alone. It was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, as far as the earliest mention of the Holy Spirit, that'd be even earlier. Yeah, verse 2. Yeah, that would be verse 2. And the earth was without void, form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the So we have God the Father. We have God the Holy Spirit. And with them, I believe, in verse 26, let us is a reference to Jesus Christ. Because John tells us, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It says the same was in the beginning with God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And who was the Word? It was Jesus Christ. Okay? And so we find that Jesus is from the very beginning of Scripture. Okay? We find Him in the Old Testament, and He may not be mentioned by name so much. You find a couple of prophecies that His name will be called Emmanuel, being interpreted God with us, right? And he was certainly God with us. 
But the name Jesus isn't mentioned until in the New Testament whenever the angel tells either Mary or Joseph that his name will be called Jesus, right? And so I said it wasn't a trick question. Maybe technically it was. Okay? You all can... It was because there's a... I don't know. That, that's perception. It's not mm-hmm. faith. It's not how what I believe in, mm-hmm. but that is perception mm-hmm. from how you can talk to someone mm-hmm. who have no beliefs in the mm-hmm. Bible or in, mm-hmm. in Christ. So mm-hmm. talk to someone, ask him, when was Jesus mentioned? Mm-hmm. That's trick question already. Mm-hmm. If you say Jesus mentioned, take out um, spiritual belief. Mm-hmm. Definitely will tell you the first time was mentioned. If you read Bible, it will point you to to, to New Testament. Mm-hmm. But again, we we I don't know, maybe wrong, but that's the belief now. Mm-hmm. I believe there is a difference between seeing Jesus or seeing the existence of Jesus mm-hmm. in a spiritual way mm-hmm. and see the existence of Jesus in form of human. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're talking about spiritual way, definitely mm-hmm. will, it will dip from the beginning because he was there. Mm-hmm. But if we're going formally to convince someone mm-hmm. that he existed before he was mentioned, this is not going to work. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just the perception. Okay. Adam yeah. was born and Adam was so it was Jesus mm-hmm. because like the God is a spirit, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was Jesus. Mm-hmm. I understand what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, but with what he's saying is uh, in the way that we would typically think of him, we think of him in his physical state. And so there's so there's a lot of people that don't think of Jesus as anything besides his life on this earth, his thirty some years in existence. And so he came into existence in their minds uh, whenever. And this gets into a different debate. Either he came in, into existence in their minds whenever the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she became pregnant. Yeah. Or they don't think of him even until he is born he into the mm-hmm. manger in Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. And they see the beginning of Jesus being there. Yes. But the reason why that is dangerous and why that is wrong is because that takes away the deity from Jesus. Because there's so many scriptures that talk about him condescending to men of low estate, mm-hmm. how he left glory above and emptied himself and put on the form of a man, yeah. right? And so we find that he existed. He laid aside some of his divine attributes, mm-hmm. and he took on flesh, and he limited himself in order to walk in in a human form and live a human life on this earth so that he can die on behalf of human beings, right? And so if you think, okay, when was his bodily presence first began? Okay, well, that would have been New Testament, right? When did he come into existence? Uh, He's always been. He's eternal. When was he first mentioned? Genesis (laughs) 1.6. Okay. That's where it gets to where it's hard for us to 
understand the spiritual from the physical. And so at that time, uh, God, it says the spirit is moving on the face of the ground or face of the earth. And it tells us that God is a spirit, but it also shows that he is speaking things into existence. And so in our minds, in order for him to be speaking, he needs to have a physical body. Yeah. But there's an entire spiritual world that we're unaware of, right? right. We, we find the voice uh, coming out of the throne whenever, I can't remember if it was Ezekiel or Isaiah, there's a voice that came forth from the, th- the throne. Not necessarily an appearance of a man or of a being, but a voice, right? And so as there is a conversation going on, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was there in his physical form because at that time he was would have been in a spiritual or a glorified form, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Are you just thinking out loud and trying to <laughs> work your way through this? We find throughout the Old Testament there are many times what is referred to as a Christophany, okay, or a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus where Jesus took on either the form of an angel or a man before Jesus ever came in the flesh. Uh, we find, for instance, whenever the three Hebrews were cast into the fiery furnace and the appearance of the fourth man was as the Son of God, right? We find that whenever Abraham, whenever he entertained uh, the strangers that came through, there were angels, but there was an extra one that appeared to Abraham but that didn't go to Sodom, which I believe was Jesus Christ again. And so there's several of those occurrences that we find in the Old Testament. And so we're going to find Jesus all the way through here. But one of the main things that I'm wanting to focus on, because I'm not going to go back to Genesis 1.26. I want to go to Genesis 3. Okay, So if you want your Bibles, you can go ahead and go to Genesis 3 if you haven't figured that one out yet. And so I'm wanting to look and see what we can find in the parallels between salvation as we know it in the New Testament and salvation as God unfolded his plan in the Old Testament, okay? And so with that, I want to look at Genesis chapter 3. And I would read the whole chapter, but I'm not going to for the sake of time and uh, walling everybody to sleep. I'm not that grand of a reader to entertain everyone. But... Let's go ahead and read the first seven verses here. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than all than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the spirit, or excuse me, and the serpent, excuse me. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave unto her gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat, and the eyes of them both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Okay? And so just to get us thinking in the right direction, we haven't gotten to Jesus yet, okay? Just so you know. 
But just so we're thinking in the right direction, what we're seeing here, a very familiar passage of Scripture. But if we look throughout creation, we see that God made all things. And after everything that he made, he says, and it was good. Mm -hmm. After he created all things, he saw that it was very good. He rested on the seventh day, right? right? And so all creation was good. It was without sin. It was perfection. He created man and woman. He put them in the garden. And he provided for everything that they needed. There was no hurt. There was no pain. There was no sorrow. There was no labor that they were required to do. God gave them dominion over everything. So Adam and Eve were in control of the whole thing. It was, their, uh, it was theirs to enjoy. And so all they had was an abundance and joy and happiness and pleasure in that place. There was nothing that was missing whatsoever. And I want to uh, emphasize that there was no need that wasn't met. There was no void that needed filling. There was nothing that they lacked. Okay. On top of that, they had fellowship with God. It wasn't that God was distant from them, that he was far away. It even speaks of him coming down in the cool of the day and walking with them in the garden. Okay. And what form he took at that time, I don't know. But God's presence was amongst them, and they enjoyed that. They enjoyed that presence and that communication. And you can imagine the conversations that Adam would have had with God. And we find that Adam was naming the animals, and he was doing all these different things in the garden, and maybe he was even discussing it with God. And so can you imagine the condition, the state that he lived in? And so there was fellowship. There was free reign over everything that, there, that they had there. But there was also a free will that was given. And so that comes to this tree where we're at. I said he had free reign. There was one thing that was restricted. And back in chapter 2 and verse 17, it says, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And so God has said, you can have anything, everything, uh, unlimited access to all of creation and the creator also. And the only thing that you were not allowed to have is the fruit off of one tree. That should be easy enough, right? And we've discussed this in the past. That should be easy enough. And it wasn't that God had put a longing in his heart. It wasn't that there was something that was left unfulfilled. It wasn't as if... Uh, he was in uh, deplorable conditions and he was trying to climb his way out. It wasn't any of these things that we would think would normally push someone into bad decisions or into sin. God wasn't distant and disconnected so that he felt as if uh, God was not near and if God didn't care. He wasn't questioning the existence of God. He shouldn't have been questioning the goodness of God, right? Because look at how much God had given and how much access he had to God and how much God had provided for him, okay? And so God put this one limitation on here, and he says, don't eat off this one tree. And we see it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and I've said in the past that there wasn't anything inherently magical or mystical about this tree. It wasn't some kind of a magical tree that whatever you pulled it off like pixie dust fell down or some lights. What it was is it was a manifestation, okay? 
It was a thing that made known the heart of Adam. It made known visibly what was going on inside his heart and his mind. Okay? Does that make sense to anybody? Because here is the thing. It was a test. And you say, well, God, how could you give him a test? Well, it was highly weighted in his favor, wasn't it? God says, here, I'll give you everything. Stay away from that tree. But it was a matter of giving him a free will. Because if there was no choice, then there is no true love. There's no true relationship if there is no alternatives, right? And so God says, okay, I'm going to give you everything you could ever possibly want or need. I'm going to give you access to myself. I'm going to give you the best that I have to create, but I'm also going to give you an alternative. You don't have to do things my way. You don't have to follow me. You don't have to do everything that I say. You have a choice, but I'm warning you up ahead of time that the reason this is off limits to you is that doing that is going to be harmful to you. And so God still is looking out for Adam in love and protection and provision for him, right? And so he says, don't eat off of that tree because that tree will kill you. That's reasonable, isn't it? Don't mess with that. It'll kill you. And so Adam goes along his way. He passes the information to Eve. Maybe he embellished it a little bit. We've talked about that before. But anyway, we don't know how long went by before finally Eve ate the fruit, and then she passed it off to Adam. I said it manifested what was in Adam's heart because you look at the questions that the devil puts in Eve's mind. God says this is bad for you. Is it really bad? God says you're going to die, but he doesn't really mean it. Yeah, sure, God's given you all these things, but he's kept this from you. And these are the very same questions that still come up into our minds, provoking us into sin today. And so sin is simply to miss a mark. It is God has laid out what is good, and we decide to not do it God's way. We decide to choose what God has put off limits, or we choose to shun the things that God said is good. Okay, So we have went aside, we have turned aside from God's path. That is sin, right? And the Bible says that all have sinned. And a lot of people get hung up in trying to gauge sin and how how wicked a sin is and which one's worse and which one's better. Adam's sin was that of disobedience. His sin was that of not trusting God. God said, Adam, don't do this. It's bad for you. And Adam says, we'll see. Is that not the attitude of humanity? We are our father's children, right? As the old saying goes, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? And so humanity still follows in that same pathway. And so what we find here in Adam and Eve's example here is that God has given all things. He has provided all things. He has given access to himself. And they have entertained lies. And they have chosen to turn away from God and all of his goodness. 
And so one of the first things that we need to make sure that we know in this is that there is no way that we can fault God. There are some today that believe that God has chosen some people to be saved and some to be lost. And I believe this passage itself refutes that teaching because did God make Adam and Eve eat the fruit? Did God plunge mankind into sinfulness? We see in this very act here that God gives man a choice. And just as he gave man a choice in the garden, he still gives man a choice in salvation today. Mm-hmm. He hasn't predecided because if he was to predecide salvation for anyone, you would have to bring that all the way back to the garden and predecide. God predetermined. He says, okay, I'm going to make them for failure. He made them with the capacity for failure. And he left the choice to them. Today with salvation, he has made us with the capacity to choose. We can choose rejection just as they chose rejection. Or we can choose acceptance. Okay? And he has given us the capacity because he is that good. We get hung up on his sovereignty and how much control God has. And yes, God can control all events and he can work all things together for good. But he will not violate himself in giving us a free will to choose whether or not we serve him. Because we are made to be an object of his love. And if we don't have a choice, then it's not love. Okay? So I'm, I'm, cover, I'm, I'm going around a lot of different things here. But what I'm wanting to get back to is this matter of salvation. We've seen the first sin here. And sin has consequences, right. Right? right? And in this situation, Adam and Eve, they have both eat of the fruit. What is the consequences? What happened as a result of them eating the fruit? Okay, there was separation, right? But which direction did that separation work from? Did God withdraw from them? They withdrew from him. Right. Right? And so we see a truth being developed here. That sin pulls us away from God. We have the idea in our minds, we usually get this backward, and we think that sin causes God to push us away. Right? But is that what we're seeing happen here? Did God change his position, did he change his uh, his distance from mankind because of their sin? No. So verse number eight, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And so sin brings separation. What else does it bring? Shame. It brings shame. What do you say? Suffering. Suffering. Okay. So it brings shame. It brings suffering. Verse number 10. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid. What else does it bring? It brings fear. And so it brings guilt, shame, fear, separation, suffering. 
And so those are the immediate results of sin. And we see those happening here. And the reason why I want to bring these out is because this is still the same effects that sin has today. It brings guilt, shame, fear, separation, and it comes in between a person and God. How does that play out in the world which we live in today? Well, we find that man still runs and hides from God. Why does mankind try so hard to deny God's existence? Because sin brings shame, and it brings guilt. And basically, whenever people are trying to say that there isn't a God or question his existence or getting mad at God, they are hiding in the bushes because of their sins. Can you all see that? And so we're getting into a little bit of the psychology of mankind and our relationship with God and with sin. So sin separates us from God. We withdraw from him. We hide ourselves from him. We try to will him into non-existence because if God exists, I am guilty and I am going to be deserving of punishment. So I am afraid and my fear and my guilt and my shame leads me to try to will God into non-existence or try to hide from him or try to blame him or others for my situation, right? And so if we continue to follow this, in verse number 12, God confronts them and, and the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. God, it's not my fault. It's your fault because of the way that you made things, because of the situation that you put me in, because of this world that I live in. God, it's unfair. And so you can't hold me responsible because I was born this way. Just to be a little political, okay? Because of the situation that you allowed me to be put into. Because of the circumstances that surround me in this world. And so, God, it's your fault. Or the woman says, the serpent, he beguiled me. I was tricked. It's their fault. And see, we still do the same thing, but we're shifting blame. But it comes back to the guilt, the shame, the fear, the separation, because mankind realizes that they are sinners. Mankind realizes they have missed the mark. That is a frightening concept, and they need to find some way to cleanse themselves of the guilt, the shame, and the fear. And so one extreme of it is trying to will God into non-existence. But what is the other option? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Just to make it simple, religion. Right? So either I'm going to pretend that God doesn't exist, I'm going to ignore his existence, I'm going to separate myself from him, I'm going to try to escape the reality of my condition, or I am going to try to, through religious means, through my good works, through my rituals, my religious deeds, all of these different things, I am going to try to make up 
for my shortcoming in order to appease God because I realize I have done wrong and I am afraid of God and I am ashamed of my actions and so I'm going to do something to make up for it. And so what did Adam and Eve do? Verse number seven. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. That was the outward uh, manifestation of their guilt and their shame, okay? They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So if you want to know what religion is, that's it. It is them making a feeble attempt to cover their own sinful condition. And we laugh at Adam and Eve. We're like, imagine them standing there in fig leaf aprons. Do you ever try to like visualize these things? I don't know what a fig leaf looks like. I don't imagine it being very big. And so they're trying to sew. They haven't ever had clothes. They haven't had sewing lessons. They're trying to figure out how to make the leaves stick together well enough to stick on themselves as clothes. I'm figuring the first clothing items they had, these fig leaf aprons, probably weren't real modest. They probably didn't cover a whole lot. Every time they try to move a little bit, there'd be a few leaves that fall off. Okay? But that's what religion does. It is my attempts, my feeble attempts, my worthless attempts at trying to cover up the guilt and the shame and the outward uh, uh, responses that I have towards sin. Trying to make myself feel better about my condition. And so God doesn't even really pay much attention to their fig leaf apron, does he? He doesn't say, hey, you're on to something there. I think I can improve that a little bit. Let me give you some sewing lessons. Let me show you a different leaf. He doesn't do that, does he? He says, no, that's not going to work whatsoever, right? And so we try to cover our own sin with religion, with good works. We find in verses 16 through 19 that sin has natural consequences. You're never going to be able to have sin and completely escape it without consequence, okay? If I go out and I cheat on my wife, God will forgive me for it, but it's going to take a while before she does, if she does. There's going to be, res- or there's going to be consequences because of that. If I go out and uh, steal from someone, God might forgive me for that. It's not going to cause me to lose my salvation, but I might still have to do some time behind bars or some community service, right? And so whenever they did this, we see that the serpent was cursed, that the man had to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow, and that the woman was in subjection to the man, right? These different things that was going to be a, or was going to be a consequence of this. But the ultimate consequence of sin, he says, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now, did they eat of the fruit and drop over like uh, Snow White and the apple? No. no, that's not what happened, right? But it did start the process of death and decay in their mortal bodies, but it also caused a spiritual death to occur in them. It separated them from God. Okay? They became spiritually dead at that moment because they had sinned against him. Basically, they have they had aligned, aligned themselves with Satan instead of with the Savior. And that's what happened at that moment that they partook of that fruit. And so there was two different types of death that we're talking about there, but they occurred at that moment. But God still wanted to deal with that because we find that God loves mankind. One of the reasons why God created mankind is because God is love. 
and love needs an object of it. It's not something that I can just, I love. I have to love someone. I have to love something, right? right. Love requires an object. It's not just some <clears throat> feeling or emotion or a state of being, right? And so God manifested his love in creating mankind, giving them an option, and still loving them even when they didn't deserve it, right? Because God's love isn't the type of love that only goes so far. God's love is an unconditional love. God's love isn't a love that is only as long as you please him, only as long as you do everything he says, only as long as uh, you are completely obedient to him. But God still loves man even while they are yet sinners, right? And so God still loved Adam and Eve, even though they had rebelled against him, they had rejected him, they had hidden from him, they had blamed him, he still loved them. But God is still a just God, and he had told them that there was a price to pay. The wages of sin is death, right? And so God, in his love and his provision, made a covering for their sin. And so down in verse number 21, we went a long way around to get to Jesus, okay? But in verse number 21, it says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. He made coats of skins and clothe them. And you say, well, how is that Jesus? They needed their sinfulness to be covered. And the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. God said that in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And so death was the price. Blood had to be shed. And God made an allowance for there to be a substitute that God was going to provide. Notice it wasn't... Adam, okay, we need you to go out and find a suitable substitute. God says, I'm going to provide a substitute. And so Adam was going to receive a covering. He was going to receive forgiveness at the expense of one that was innocent. This animal that gave up its coat, he didn't just get sheared. It was a coat of skin, not a coat of wool. And so the animal had to die so that Adam could live, and that was Adam's introduction to what death was. He had never seen death. He didn't understand death. And so just to bring this related to us a little bit more, whenever God says, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die, Adam understood that's a bad thing. I can't fully envision what it is. I don't fully understand what it is. But God says, I don't want that. That it is a punishment, it is a result, it is a consequence, and so I don't want that. And so to relate that to us today, how much do you know about hell? We know a little bit from Scripture, right? People have debated, argued, tried to come up with many different things about hell, but in many senses we're the same way as Adam. It's still a concept that we can't fully grasp. And God says, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. He tells us that the wages of sin is death. That death is an eternal separation from God in 
hell. Mm -hmm. We know that it's a place of torment, it's a place of darkness, it's a place of fire and smoke and pain and screaming and, you know, all these different things that are not nice, right? Right. But we can't wrap our mind around the horrors of hell. And so for us, we have been warned that the payment, the penalty for sin is hell. People try to escape it. The devil says, ye shall not surely die. There's not really a hell. God wouldn't really do that, right? Isn't that what happens? And so it's a concept we can't fully grasp. And so we start thinking, okay, don't really know too much about that. Don't really understand it. Not sure if it's really a thing. Here's all we need to know about it. God has told us that it is somewhere we don't want to go. He has told us enough to, we know that it is unpleasant. And he has also told us that there's an alternative, right? And so with this verse number 21, this coat of skin, we find that it was provided by God. It was at the expense of the innocent and that it had to be accepted by the guilty. Now, that's reading between the lines just slightly here. God didn't just say, okay, Adam, you've got to put this on and force a coat on him. He didn't hog time and make him wear it, okay? Adam had the understanding, I sinned, I deserve death, I just watched that thing die in front of me. And he says, I don't want to do that. And God says that if I clothe myself with the skins of this innocent animal, then I can live. And Adam says, I don't understand it. Doesn't fully make sense to me, but I'm going to accept it by faith. God has told me that this is the way that he has made. This is the plan that he has provided. And so I am going to choose to accept it and I'm going to put it on. And so salvation is by grace through faith. Grace means God provided it. It's unmerited gift. Okay? So God provided a way, and I accept it by faith. Mm -hmm. And so where do we find salvation? Where do we find Jesus in this passage? We find it in verse number 21, whenever God says, you have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But I have made a way that you can live that you can receive forgiveness, that you can be reconciled to me if you'll accept it. And we see Adam accepting it and putting on that clothing, that righteousness. We can turn over, I won't for the sake of time, if you want to write it down, look at it later. Revelation chapter number 19 and verse 8, we find the saints putting on pure white robes, the righteousness of Christ that they clothe themselves in. We see all the way through the New Testament, whenever Paul is writing, he talks about us being in Christ. We are in Christ the same way that Adam was in that animal that gave up its life for him. Okay? And so whenever you look at Adam, you weren't actually looking at Adam. He was enrobed. He was clothed with that animal. And so for us, whenever God looks at us, if you are born again, if you're a Christian, whenever... God looks at us. He doesn't see our sinful condition. He sees the righteousness of Christ that we are enrobed with. He has given us a garment pure and white. He has clothed us with his righteousness, not our own. 
And so it has to be accepted. And I said that with the whole idea of accepting it, it was reading between the lines a little bit. But if we go on into chapter number four, we find it's not reading between the lines at all. Because in chapter number four, we have Cain and Abel, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll make this one quick. In chapter number four, we have Cain and Abel, and it has been told to them. They realize that they are sinners, okay? They have inherited the gene from Adam. They have become sinners just the same as their daddy was. And they find out that they need to make a sacrifice, right? Verse number three of chapter four, it says, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Cain and Abel was familiar with the whole story. They had heard about the animal being slain. They saw the skins that their parents were clothed in. And it came time that they were to kill an animal to cover and atone for their sins. To have an innocent creature die on behalf of the guilty. And whenever it came time for that, Abel says, I'm going to accept God's way. I don't fully understand it. I'm not sure why the animal has to die. I know I deserve death, and I'm going to accept that God has made a way that that animal can die in my place. And so he offers up a blood sacrifice, right? But Cain, Cain says, that's stupid. Why would I go out and get my hands dirty? Why would I go out and shed that blood? Why would I skin out that animal? I have worked, I've labored, I have toiled under the sun and look at these beautiful fruits and vegetables that I have grown. And they should be a much greater payment than a pile of skin and a pool of blood. These should be much better than what Abel's got. And so I'm going to offer these up to God. Yes, I've sinned, but God accept this cauliflower and cabbage and kale and a few tomatoes and a cucumber. Now, I don't know that that's what he actually offered, but you know. And so he says, here, God, look at all that I've done, all of the works of my hands. Surely this will please you. And once again, Cain was falling into the same category as his father before him, and he was sewing together fig leaves. That's all it was. He says, I'm going to cover up my own sins by my own works. And so Cain has repeated that process that Adam and Eve had already tried and failed with. And God has revealed to them that you have sinned, blood has to be shed, and I have provided a substitute for you. And you have to accept that by faith. And Cain said no. And that wasn't even the end of it because God comes to Cain and he says, why are you wroth? Why is your countenance fallen? You can still go out and obey. You can still go out and offer up a lamb just like I have required. And instead, he goes and kills his brother. He doubles down, right? And so that is the story of religion to this day. That God says, 
Your righteousness cannot get you into heaven. Your righteousness, the works of your hands, cannot buy forgiveness of sin. I have prepared a way. I have had the innocent die for the guilty, and you must accept his payment. You must accept his death on your behalf. And religion says, I don't like that. I'm a good person. I give money. I volunteer my time. I read this many chapters and I go to mass and I go to this service and I go to that service and I I do all these different things. And surely that's enough, God. And God says, not by works of righteousness, which you have done. And so from the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis, all the way to the very end in Revelation, the same message, the same salvation, for by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. As we get into the law later on, we're going to find that, yes, men were offering up sacrifices, but that was a result of their faith in God's provision. Okay? The sacrifices weren't covering their sins. It wasn't atoning for their sin. It was that they accepted God's provision for the saving of their souls. Okay? Because even under the sacrificial system, you couldn't offer a sacrifice for every sin, right? There is not enough animals on the planet if you had to offer an animal for every sin. And so still at that time, it was by faith. And so it was an exercise of faith. It was an outward manifestation of what God had already done in their hearts. They said God has provided a substitute. Them offering up that sacrifice said, I know I'm a sinner and I need someone to die in my place. And until that one comes and dies in my place, I'm going to exercise faith. I'm going to demonstrate my faith by offering up this lamb. So there's always been one way of salvation. By grace, through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And so from Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, a gift of God, not of works. God didn't say, go and do penance. God didn't say, go and perform all of these things. He didn't say, do enough to make up for the sin that you've committed. He says, you deserve death, but I'm going to allow a substitute to die in your place. And Adam said, I accept that substitute. It's salvation from the very beginning. And if that one's not enough to convince you, we're going to have several more of them as we go through the Old Testament. All right? So any questions or comments on that this evening? Uh, yeah, I'll be there. Okay. Um, we, we, we spoke about salvation, how, how it comes. Totally agree. By faith, is one way. Mm-hmm. The, the one the Two way, otherwise that we will be having mm-hmm. beliefs in, in different in different things. 
But the question for me is, when was Adam get saved? When did he get saved? Mm -hmm. Because in 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 the teaching as you take, mm -hmm. and maybe that's why I'm asking this question so that I get the clarity on it. Mm -hmm. It seems like Adam was he never he never asked for uh, for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. He was offered. Mm -hmm. So to my understanding, to get saved you have to understand first you sin mm -hmm. and accept that there have to be one person or there have to be someone you will rely on in mm -hmm. order for you to get saved. Mm -hmm. So, um, try to make me understand when did Adam get saved if he never even asked for well, for one thing, God can look on the heart. Okay. Okay. Nothing says that you have to be formulaic about it. Okay. Yeah. In uh, in the New Testament, we find mm -hmm. several passages referring back to Old Testament saints. Okay. Uh, Abraham believed God. Yes. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. Okay. okay? So it was at the point in time where he believed. Okay. So with Adam, before he ever accepted the coat of skin from the animal, mm -hmm. he already knew that he had sinned. Yes. That's why he was afraid. That's why he was hiding, hiding. all these things. Yeah. God confronted him, and he tried to do the normal human thing of cast blame, shift blame, and everything. And I think this shows us a lot about uh, God's heart toward the sinner. He realizes that we are imperfect creatures. He realizes that we are sinners. He realizes that we're not going to do everything perfect and just right. And so he doesn't come in and say, you know, Adam, you know, look at this, you're casting blame on all these things, so you will be punished even worse. Those are manifestations. Those are outward showings that Adam knew that he was a sinner. Okay? And so there were some things, uh, if you'll pardon the expression here, there are things going on between the lines between Adam and God because God would not have offered salvation unless Adam knew he needed to be saved, okay? And Adam wouldn't have accepted it unless he knew he needed to be saved, okay? And on top of that, um, on top of that, what we see from Cain and Abel in chapter number four, shows us that Adam has taught Cain and Abel, right? Mm -hmm. And so we realize that there was, if nothing else, a heart change that went on. There was an understanding that happened, uh, more developed, if you will, uh, understanding of salvation that happened. Between that time that we see in chapter three and verse 21, and chapter 4, verse 4. And so as far as pointing out a specific time, the Bible doesn't necessarily make it clear. There's, a, there's been a lot of debates about different characters in the Bible, whether they were saved or not. Mm -hmm. The Old Testament makes it difficult to 
to to make that calling. Okay, yeah. uh, one of the ones that people often debate on. Well, I'll say two of them. Two of them that people often debate on is Saul and Samson. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. You look at Saul and say, was Saul saved? Because he did plenty of wicked things, right? And we do know that Samuel, whenever he's conjured up by Saul, he says, today you're going to be where I'm at. That seems to indicate that he probably was saved. Right? Samson, he lived a life of promiscuity, of pleasing the flesh, and God empowered him from time to time, but God also empowered Balaam's donkey. <laughs> and so, I mean, it doesn't necessarily make it clear in the Old Testament who's saved and who's not. And so what we come down to, uh, with Adam, we know that he was. Pretty sure of it, right? Of course, because yeah. God did, did okay. show his way of through him, but right. to, my, to my understanding is, yes, he was saved, Mm-hmm. God gave him salvation. Mm-hmm. He did accept it. That's mm-hmm. that done. But, it, but another thing is that maybe because there was not there was no lot of knowledge back mm-hmm. then. Because we, we talk about death. Mm-hmm. Adam never knew death. Right. So for us, we 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 have an understanding. Right. We are seeing people dying. Mm-hmm. We knew we going to die because mm-hmm. God said. So for Adam, it was like, you talking about what? What is it? It's like mm-hmm. telling a child, don't do that. And uh, definitely, they have no clue. Mm-hmm. So I will, I will, I will understand the position of Adam at that mm-hmm. time. He really has to accept what God gave to. Him. He didn't mm-hmm. have any other choice. Mm-hmm. So for us, at least. We have experience based on what he, he went through. Yeah. So I will agree yeah. he was saved, but even though there right. was no guilty shows, there was no asking of forgiveness. He did show yeah. guilt of running away. Well, with okay, no. with what you what with building on what you have said, okay, there is so much more that we know than what Adam knew, right. and there is the principle that to whom much is given, much is required, right? Mm-hmm. And so do you think that God would have been a little more lenient with Adam than he is with us? Yes. And so Adam, he's not going to have a fully developed theology. He's not going to have all these other things. But God does know what's going on in his mind and his heart. And God is a righteous judge. And he's able to say, okay, Adam realizes he messes up. He may not be able to fully uh, develop this doctrine and this theology, but he knew he messed up. And I have offered him a substitute. And I have said, okay, you're supposed to die. I've got a way. I will pay this payment for you. And he says, okay, I will take it. Mm -hmm. And so what it comes down to, all the way through Scripture, when does someone get saved? When they believe. Okay. It's not whenever they pray. Not whenever they shed a tear. Not whenever they have done enough of this or that or the other. Or asking for forgiveness. Yeah, or asking for forgiveness or any of these things. The moment they are saved is whenever they believe. When do they believe? When they realize. We we don't. So when did you believe? I can't say. What was that moment whenever it clicked and you believed? I don't know. But God does. And hopefully you do. Okay. (laughs) You know. Yeah. And so that's the thing is that I can't judge any other man's salvation. 
And I can't say what time it was that it finally clicked, but it brings out another thing. And, and I've, I've got to re- wrap this up before I keep you all night. But it brings out another thing is that amongst other religions and denominations, they have this idea that salvation is a long process, mm-hmm. that it's like a journey and you finally get to the destination of salvation. You don't find that in the Bible. You find a decision being made. You find it not necessarily being outward. Sometimes it's inward. You go to the thief on the cross. Okay, he's a good example because he had no time to do any religious activities. He could do no penance. He could do nothing, but he believed. He told the other thief, he says, we deserve to die for our crimes. We're here justly. So in a way, you could say he admitted he was a sinner. But the biggest thing is, whenever he looked at Jesus, he says, remember me whenever you enter into your kingdom. So he said, I believe that you have a kingdom. I believe that you are a king. I believe you're who you're saying you are. And if it was anything other than belief, that would have been stupid. Because he was getting ready to die just the same. But he says, I believe that this death isn't the end and that you can do something about my situation. I'm hopeless to save myself, but I believe you can do something about it. And so he called out to Jesus. That was the prayer. But I believe that... I need to word this differently. I believe that I believe. Anyway, (laughs) I, I believe that before he could pray, before he could ask that the belief had to have already happened, right? And the prayer was the result of the belief, right? Mm -hmm. And so he believed that Jesus was the Son of God and that Jesus was able to do something about the damnation of his eternal soul. And whenever he believed that, it caused him to respond and call out to Christ and say, when you come into your kingdom, Remember me, right? And so coming back to Adam, there's not so many places that you could point to there, but there is a conversation. And in this, I see maybe a little bit more than between a judge and a defendant, I see a father and a child. And so you think of Adam in that way. It's just a very new, young, immature relationship, right? And Adam has sinned against the Father. And so God finds him hiding in the bushes and says, Adam, I've already told you that whenever you did this, there was going to be consequences, right? And so he deals with him as a father with his son. And so I don't know that I can give you a definitive or even a um, satisfactory answer of (laughs) at what point in time did Adam get saved? But we can infer from the relationship and the way that the conversation went that Adam was convicted of his sin. He knew that he was guilty and he knew that what God was offering him was going to take care of that. And so after that, the relationship is restored. It's not quite to the state that it was before, but he is restored to his relationship with God. 
and his sin has been put under the blood, so to speak. He has received forgiveness. And now he is walking in that relationship knowing the consequences of sin and knowing the cost of sin. And it's going to change. It's going to affect how he walks with God the rest of it. It's not going to be an exact parallel to what we see in New Testament salvation because in New Testament salvation, Jesus has come and he has died once and for all. And so in the Old Testament, we are seeing figures and types and shadows, okay? And maybe that's a good way to put it. If I see your shadow, I might be able to tell a little bit about what you look like, but I'm not going to be able to have a full idea. I'm not going to have a full understanding of who you are, right? And so in the Old Testament, salvation was still received the same way, but it was a shadow. It wasn't a full understanding. It was saying, I need a substitute. I need someone else to die in my place. I don't know how that's going to work out. I don't know what that looks like practically, but it was still forward-looking, and Les brought that out earlier uh, whenever we were first getting into this. It was forward-looking. I'm looking forward to that one, that substitute, and we're now looking back and we're seeing, okay, that's what all of that meant. Okay? So you have another question? We're going to leave that time. Leave it for right now? <laughs> for now, yeah. And that's to well, we can go ahead and pray, and if you want to ask another question, we can do that. Then. Okay? So we're not keeping everybody hostage. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and, uh, and we'll see what we get into. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Well, we thank you so much for your word, Lord, and how we can see uh, that salvation wasn't a an afterthought, but it was something that you had from the very beginning. And Lord, I'm thankful that it's never been dependent upon our on our good works or on our abilities, Lord, that it's always been offered as a free gift to be accepted by faith, Lord. And Lord, I thank you for uh, these things that we see in scriptures. We can develop this uh, understanding of salvation and how it works. And Lord, I just pray that it would be a, a help and a blessing to those who hear it, that it would strengthen faith and understanding, Lord. Thank you so much for all you do, and all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.